So Hebrews chapter nine, verse one simply says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. The idea was this, back in the days of Israel, they had um, worship that was instituted by God for his people. And in the early days of Abraham, they didn't have it, but eventually they had a tabernacle or a tent of meeting. And that tabernacle was a tent in which they would take with them on their journey. And that tabernacle would sit in the middle of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then it had several parts in this tabernacle. After the tabernacle or this temporary tent, it would become a permanent structure. Through David, he would have a son named Solomon. Solomon would ultimately build the first temple that we know. It would be destroyed by the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians, it would be rebuilt by the great prophets like Ezra and Nehemiah and all of those guys. And they would actually rebuild it, but it would be destroyed in 70 AD. And so the Jews always had this picture of being able to worship God through a tabernacle and eventually a temple. But what, what the writer says is that there were things about the tabernacle that we should pay attention to. And so in verse two, it says, for the tent was prepared. The first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And so the idea was, is that there was a, a first section and then there was a second section. That first section was a place where the Levite priests could come and go and they could observe their daily routines. It was a place where there was a lampstand and a table for bread. And on that bread were basically 12 loaves of bread. And all of those 12 loaves symbolized the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And it was a reminder that the Levites could come into the presence of God, but they were limited. They couldn't get to God with totality. So there was a 15 by 15 room in the tabernacle, and it was called the most holy place. It was divided by a curtain. And this curtain would, would uh, be uh, of different colors and really kind of a, uh, had cherubim on it. And it was huge and it was thick. And, and a high priest would have to pull it back in order to enter in uh, to the place that was the most holy place. And then you look at verse three, it says, behind that second curtain in the place called the most holy place, there was a golden altar of incense. And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So the picture was is that inside this most holy place, a place where you were very limited and you couldn't go was the Ark of the Covenant. Y'all remember Indiana Jones, right? Yes, hey, raise your hands if you remember Indiana Jones. Yeah, on the search of the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Just, just FYI, the Ark of the Covenant still has not been found to date. But the Ark of the Covenant was a, a box made of acacia wood, and then it, it had uh, gold that was stamped on the outside of it. And then in that was basically three items. You had um, the first item uh, uh, was the golden urn holding manna. That was a reminder that God had provided for his people in Israel, although they what? Complained and they grumbled. Oh, manna again? but that was there. It was a reminder that God was good to his people. You had Aaron's staff that budded, and it was a reminder that even though God had blessed the people, that they had turned toward idolatry, and that they uh, had seasons and times in their life, and in the legacy of the people of Israel, that they turned their back on God. 
And then you had the last one, which was the tablets of stone or the Ten Commands, which we know. And you remember, you remember Moses, he snapped the first ones in half because he was frustrated with his brother Aaron because of their disobedience, their rebellion. Sound familiar with Israel? But God gave them to him again, and those were held in the Ark of the Covenant. And then you see from there, above it were cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak of in detail. So the writer of Hebrews says, the Ark of the Covenant was a really holy thing. Matter of fact, you see in Exodus and and other places in the scripture that the Ark of the Covenant had poles. And those poles were to keep the priests and those who uh, moved the Ark of the Covenant from place to place when it wasn't in the most holy place, that they couldn't touch the Ark of the Covenant. Matter of fact, uh, there was a king who stumbled and touched the Ark of the Covenant and he died. And so we see that the Ark of the Covenant is very important. Why? Because it was a reminder to the people of Israel what God had done. But most of all, it exemplified God's presence among his people on earth. And the Ark of the Covenant set in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies. There was a veil that kept it from the holy place, which was inside the tabernacle or the tent. You got it? Yes. Let me show you a picture just in case you're like, I can't see this for myself. Look at this picture. So you had the holy place and then dividing the holy place to another chamber of 15 by 15 section to the holy holies or the most holy place was the veil, the curtain. And inside of that most holy place was this incredible ornate box made of acacia wood, topped with gold, had cherubim that overlooked it. There was a mercy seat or a lid on top of it, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. See it? Verse 6. It says, These preparations have been made, and the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. So the idea of this is that that tabernacle was God's way of dwelling among his people. Now, just real quick side note, which I think is really cool. God has always been about the business of dwelling among his people. In the Old Testament, he dwelt in the tabernacle among his people. All the tribes of Israel encompass it. Later, he would dwell in the temple in his people. Later, after the temple, the Shekinah presence in Ezekiel leaves the temple, and he returns when the infant Jesus is born. Not of flesh, but of what? Spirit of a virgin birth, so that he is not, what, sin, but he comes and he lives and he dwells among his people. John 1 says that Jesus came and he dwelt. And the word dwelt there is the word tabernacled among his people. And if you look at it further in the Greek, it literally means skene, among skin. So Jesus dwells among his people in skin. And let me ask you a question. Now, how does God dwell? He doesn't dwell in a place built with human hands, but he he dwells in what? Us, skin, skin. It's always been the pattern of God to dwell among his people. You see that? And so he's, yes? As Cody would say, are you picking up what I'm putting down? (laughs) These preparations have been made and the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their rituals. They're going and they come. And there are 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Only one tribe can even go into the holy place. And that's the Levite tribe. It's the priestly tribe that comes from the line of Aaron. And so if you understand how limited access is to God, you basically have 12 tribes of the people of Israel who would all go, we are God's people, but only a 12th of those people can actually go into the presence of God, into the tabernacle. And 
Then you go from there, and there's only one man of all the tribe of Levi that God selects, which is the high priest, that can go even further than that to the most holy place. And so if you look at it, it says, verse 7, but in the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so here's the idea. You have 12 tribes. They encompass this incredible place called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is divided in two sections. You've got the holy place, the most holy place. It's divided by a veil. This veil is something that a high priest would slip back the curtain once a year and he would walk in to the holy of holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant dwelt. And he would go one day a year. It's called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Everybody here say Yom Kippur. Okay, since y'all didn't do very good, okay? And that's okay. Let's do it one more time. Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Comes on the 10th day of the seventh month. And that was the day that a high priest would cleanse himself. He would put on a linen ephod. He would sacrifice a bull for his family's sins. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would burn incense. And that incense was uh, an incredible fragrance of God. Matter of fact, in Exodus, you see that there is actually an uh, ingredient list for burning incense. And God said in that, at the end of the ingredient list, he told Moses and the people, he said, and you better not burn it anywhere else or you'll surely die. So don't go look up the list and go, oh, I'm going to burn incense to God, okay? Uh, but that incense was there, and here's why. The incense that, that they would burn was to keep the high priest from seeing the face of God. And he would go into this holy place and as he's burning incense, he would take the blood of a goat and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat of God while having another goat that was alive. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked this question, but I asked it uh, several years ago. Wait a second, why would God, if he's so holy and just, kill a, a goat? or a bull for that matter. Like, I mean, it doesn't even seem right. Like, why would God do that? If God is so loving and just, and why would he kill an animal? It doesn't even make sense to me. What has the animal done? Exactly that. Nothing. See, you and I, we can't die on the altar because you and I are guilty. Our sins keep us from seeing God face to face. Matter of fact, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses said, God, may I please see your face? And God said, no, you cannot see my face. And the reason why is because Moses would literally have just shriveled and died because you and I could not see God face to face, nor could a high priest. That was the purpose of incense. And so God said, Moses, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And he put his hand over Moses and he passed by and Moses got a glimpse of God in his back. And the picture of this is this, is that God limited the Jews' access to priestly tribe, but even more than that, to one high priest who would go in and he would make offering for people's sin after he had already made a bull sacrifice for himself. He would go in and he, what would he do? He would make it for the unintentional sins of the people. So like some of us in here, we're just boneheads. You know what I'm talking about? Like we sin and we know we sin. Well, that was Israel. And the idea was, is that if you knew you sinned, you could do a sacrifice for your sin that you knew. And so even uh, people could do some sacrifices for themselves and the priestly tribe would do sacrifice. They had morning sacrifice and evening sacrifice. But the picture of day atonement, the reason that Yom Kippur existed was that there were some national sins. There were people's sins that uh, they had committed. They, they were unintentional. They may not have even known about. And that was the purpose of this high priest going in. He was going to make things right for the nation. 
Now, I told you a second ago, he took in two goats. One of those goats was going to lose its life, and there was going to be bloodshed on the, on the altar of the mercy seat. Then there was another one, and that other one was a scapegoat of sorts. And he would literally, after uh, the priest came out of the veil and out of the holy place, he would let that other goat go. And for a year, it would wander around the, ilder, the wilderness. And every time that people saw that extra goat, what would they do? They'd go, we remember that that goat is there as a reminder for the remission of our sins. And so they would see, but they knew that the next year on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, yeah, 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 I remember that, that they would do it over and over and over and over again. Why? Verse 8, because by the Holy Spirit, it would indicate the way that the holy place is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so the picture is, is this, the reason that the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies is because there was some ceremonial things that were being done, but even those ceremonial things could not perfect or purify the heart of the worshiper. So even though God looked at Israel and said, your sins are forgiven for a year, it would not blot them out, but merely cover them for a season. Do you see the picture here? But, but, look at that next verse, verse 11. Matter of fact, Mark came up and I, we're going to do later uh, a couple, maybe, I don't know, a year from now, uh, big butts in the Bible, okay? <laughs> this is one of them. Here it is. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this crea creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctified the purification of flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works that serve the living God? So the picture is, is this. In the Old Testament, you had a priest who had to cleanse himself. He would go into the presence of God, couldn't see God, but he would offer sacrifice of blood. God would forgive them and their sins would be taking place for a year. But when Christ appeared, Christ appeared as the high priest, one who was perfect in every way. Though he was tempted like you and I, he was without sin. He is the perfect high priest. And he what? Entered into a place, not a place built by hands, but a heavenly dwelling. And so we see that everything that the Old Testament presented in the temple, in the a tabernacle or the tent of meeting was all a picture of a heavenly dwelling place in which Christ would one day reside. It is a mere copy or a shadow. And so last week, I don't know if you caught it, but Archie was showing you some of the ideas of a priest and what it looked like for a priest to live for God and to offer himself as an appropriate uh, person to mediate. Now we see that it wasn't just a priest, but it was a copy of the tabernacle and how God dwelt among his people. And then next week you see the sacrifice part and even the latter part. And so it was all of these things that were mere, what, shadows or copies of the real deal. So here's the deal. 
So many of us, we think, oh, okay, if I'm going to get to God somehow, then I need to do everything I can to clean myself externally. And so like you think, okay, I need to pray more. I need to go to church more. I need to read my Bible more. And then of course, there's probably a lot of habits that we have that we need to get rid of, right? Like, I mean, you, you have a list of them. You're like, okay, I probably do need to stop doing this and this and this and this. And the way we think of it in our mind is if we can do more good things than we do bad things and somehow God would somehow forgive us and it would appease the sin that we have. The problem is Romans 3.23 says, for all sin falls short of the glory of God. The problem from there is Romans 6.23, the wages are sin. What the payment that we get because of our sin is death. And so the deal is this, you and I don't get to just come to God once a week or once a year and say, hey God, would you just forgive me of my sin? Then go out and fill up your sin bucket even more and then come back to him. That's not how it works. That's how it works for Israel. But when Christ appeared, when Christ appeared, he didn't appear by the means of bulls and blood of goats, but he came, what? By the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. It is Christ and his perfect sacrifice that allows us to have life and to have it everlasting. Which means you and I are not going to somehow externally cleanse ourselves and, and get right with God. Like we don't just get to come to God and say, God, I'm going to do everything I can this year to do better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Now, let me just explain how like turning over a new leaf, it happens. Like, right. I'm going to go to regeneration. I'm going to go through that 12-step program. And at the end of regeneration, 12-step program, you walk out and you're like, oh, I'm good. I'm healed. No, it's not regeneration that heals you. I think about like this. Any of you, like, you're like, oh, I need to read my Bible more. I need to study my Bible more. Anytime that I do that, I'm like, I need to run to Walmart. Because if I'm going to study my Bible more, i got to go to Walmart. You're like, what? Well, because you got to have the best highlighters, right? you got to have the right pen. you got to have a new journal. And the reason why is because somehow and another, we're like, we're ramping ourselves up to read our Bible better. And so we, we play a trick in our mind, like, okay, I'm going to go get highlighters and pens and all that, and I'm going to really study my Bible. For some of you, it has nothing to do with your Bible because you don't read it. It has to do with working out. Like, this year really is going to be the year that I work out. And although you've spent over $1,000 the last five years and you haven't worked out, you're like, this year, I'm going to work out. And so what's the very first thing you do? You go get new clothes. <laughs> I got to have workout clothes. I, I, I mean, I, I got to look the part and... The reason that you have to buy new ones because the ones that you had last year don't fit. <laughs> and so like, I mean, the thought is, is like, okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. But that's the picture of Israel. The picture of Israel is I'm going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to have a blood sacrifice. It's going to be remission of sins. But they had to do it year after year after year after year. When Christ appeared, it was done. And there is no need for you and I to cleanse ourselves because why? It's impossible for you and I to be cleansed in and of ourselves, of our works, or even us going to church. And so listen, let, let me just speak to the person in here. that, like, like you've gotten into a habit of going to church because you go, that's the thing that I think I should do. And you've even believed the lie that like, hey, my kids shouldn't run in the temple. And, and man, we, we ought to wear our Sunday best because, hey, God really cares about what we wear. If it's Christ and his sacrifice, then we need to know that it's not some sort of external cleansing we do. Because there's nothing that we can do that actually gains approval to God. Even if you wear your best clothes, even if you're the most faithful attender, even if your kids don't run in the church, 
It doesn't matter because we have a sin problem that has not been atoned for or paid for. And we're not looking for it to be paid for because we sacrificed a goat or a bull, right? I mean, I don't know how many of y'all have ever sacrificed a goat or bull. Well, you're like, I do deer hunting. Does that count? No, no, no. Why? Because Christ appeared finally. And so what does he do? When he appears, verse 15, he becomes a mediator of a new covenant. He takes the old and he doesn't... He doesn't remove it, but he reminds you that the old is not meant to be your cleansing. Your old, the old covenant is to be a picture, a foreshadow, a typical prophetic of the things to come. That Jesus is the real thing. That he's the true and better. It's him that we need. It's his blood sacrifice applied. Why? Because he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called, us, Christians, people that are a part of the way, may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So the first covenant, apart from, apart from blood sacrifice, were, were doomed. Then look, for where a will is involved, verse 16, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the idea here is this. If you have a written will, you, you make a written will when you're alive, right? And the reason that will is written is so that upon your death, it could be established. And so the picture here is this, is that the will was enforced, but it's not established until the one who is the author of the will is dead. And so you and I are doomed because there's a sacrificial system up until the point of the one who's the author and the protector of our faith, the one who wrote the divine will. His name is Jesus. And upon his death, his will is transferred and takes place. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Like what? So here it is. The picture of God and his forgiveness and remission of sins has been a continual pattern that has not changed. God said it to himself, I am God. I am the Lord. I do not change. And somehow or another, because we begin to read our Bible, and, and listen, many of us in here, we can interpret it different ways. But when you read a passage like this, you have to look back and go, well, how in the world did, the, did God deal with sin in the Old Testament? And here's how he dealt with it, two ways. Hebrews 11 says it was accredited to what? Moses and Abraham by faith. And so it was faith and bloodshed. It was faith in a holy God that even though they had failed and sinned, that there was a blood sacrifice that paved the way for them. Fast forward. It's the same picture. It is faith in a holy God and it is an appropriate sacrifice with bloodshed. And if you're new to the first, first time in church, you're like, um, dude, this is weird, weird. And it may seem weird, but the idea here is this, is that there has to be something that pays for our sin. And if it's not us turning over a new leaf, then it has to be something more spectacular. And we know it's Jesus. And here's the deal. You and I have heard all our lives, yes, Jesus came and he died on the cross for our sins. But the question is, is why? Why? Because that answer is no longer good enough just for the means of salvation. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Why? Why did he do that? The reason why is because you and I could not enter the most holy place. And the most holy place, according to the writer of Hebrews chapter 9, is it's not a temple, it's not a tabernacle. 
I mean, for some of you, man, I can't go to that church, man. It's going to fall down on me. No, it's not. Heaven may, but the building won't. Why? Because the way we get to God is not by ourselves so that no one can oppose Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace that we've been saved through faith in Christ. Not of our works so no one can boast. It's not about external cleansing. It's not about coming to God every once a year and saying, you know what, this year is going to be different, God. Because we really have nothing to bring Him. Even our best is like filthy rags before a holy God. We are sinners, we are apart from a holy God, and we need an, an inheritance from someone that would give us a will that was paid for by death and blood sacrifice. His name is Jesus. So here we go. Verse 19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both on the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant of which God commanded you. you. See, it was sacrificial cleansing. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? It is the shedding of blood that brings about forgiveness and remission of sin. Verse 23, thus, because of that, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So everything you saw in the earthly tabernacle or the sanctuary were mere copies of true and better heavenly things. You understand this? And I know that most of us in here were like, I've never really looked at the temple. I've never really looked at the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. I've never really understood all that. I don't know what you're talking about, the curtain, the veil. What I'm saying is, is this, is that was a, an institution there for the people to find forgiveness. But Jesus has proclaimed and prepared us that there is a new one. That was merely a copy and a shadow of a true and better. And so what happens? Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, but what? Those are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, and now appears the presence of God on our behalf. So catch this. Born of a virgin, not of flesh. John 3, flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. If Jesus was born of natural flesh, if there was not a virgin birth, then get this. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. Why? Because you and I are not eligible to be a sacrifice because of our sin. I mean, you think back in to Genesis chapter 22, and you remember Abraham, and he had a son named Isaac, and he takes him to the altar, and he heads up to uh, the mountain, and he's about to sacrifice his son on the altar, and he raises up his hand, and God says, stop. He goes, I provided for you a sacrifice, and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And for... Uh, for years, many of us have probably contemplated that, but in college, when I was a freshman in college, I had a professor who said, there is no way I could ever put my faith in a God who would call their father to kill their son. And I've always pondered that and always thought about that. And when I was a freshman in college, I didn't have the slightest clue in how to defend that. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I don't believe that, but okay, you, you have every right. But in the years as I studied that text more and more, here's what I've come to know. Although God wanted to see Abraham's obedience, there is no possible way that God would have ever allowed Isaac to be sacrificed. Why? 
Because Isaac was with sin. And here's the, here's the question that I want you to deal with. If you could not be an appropriate sacrifice for your loved ones, meaning you could not hang on a cross so that other people get a means to heaven, then it means you're not allowed to get to heaven yourself. Think about that. If you're not eligible to die on the cross and to hang on behalf of your family's sins, and, and so you think about that, dads, you can't get your three-year-old or your five-year-old to heaven. You can't lay your life down for them. You would do anything for them, but because of your sin problem, you're not eligible to enter into the most holy place. You're not able to sacrifice. If you're not able to be a sacrifice for someone, then you're not able to enter heaven. What a dilemma. And the dilemma is taking place of because we have a high priest who now appears in the presence of God. So you have Jesus born of a virgin, tempted in every way, Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin, lives a perfect life, goes to the cross, Isaiah 53, he was a lamb led to the what slaughter. He stood silent before his shears. He was punished for our iniquities. It pleased God to put a rod on his back and punish his son for us. He dies, he overcomes sin, death, and the grave so that 1 Corinthians 15, we could see people again that we love so that our faith is not futile and we're not pitied. But most of all, so that death is conquered and that we don't have to face the reality of being separated from God, but that we could be in right relationship with him. And Jesus raises from the dead and at Pentecost, he what? goes to heaven. And here's the deal. We go, well, of course he would go back to the place he came from. I mean, he left the heavenly dwelling place to come and save people from their sins, to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 10, verse 10. Right? That makes sense. But here's what's crazy. He didn't go back just to take his proper place. He went back on our behalf. He went back so that at the time when it came to picking teams, he was there to go, he's mine, she's mine. Y'all remember picking teams, right? I mean, I was always picked last, you know? I was the little roly-poly over here, and everybody's like, oh, he probably can't play. So I was just jumping up and down like, hey, please pick me, please pick me. I just want to be on a team. Y'all remember that, don't you? Some of you never got picked, and you're bitter. (laughs) But in the end of days, essentially what we have is God sitting on his throne, perfect in every way. Sin has never, ever come into his presence. And it's not about to start now. And the only way that it's paid for is that there's a high priest, one who enters into the most holy place before God in his throne. And he goes, I've paid for that. I've covered him. And in a sense, he's going, she's mine. She's mine. He's mine. He's mine. I don't know him. Wait, 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 wait a second. You don't know me? Well, I was a deacon in my church. I oversaw our budget. I mean, I was faithful every Sunday. The reality of Matthew 7, depart from me for I don't know you. Why? Because we don't get to God on behalf of our good deeds or our external cleansing. We get to God because Jesus is our high priest. He's our He's our intercessor and he's the one who his blood was poured out for the remission of our sins and we have life in him that he was the sufficient sacrifice. Understand? 
And then get this. So, you, so you're telling me he was a sufficient sacrifice? Well, how many times did that have to be? I mean, I've been saved seven times. I've been baptized more than that. What? Verse 25 says, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year without, with blood uh, not of his own. Do you, you understand that? He goes, Jesus didn't come like the high priest of old. The high priest went every, what? Day of atonement. Tenth day of the seventh month, Yom Kippur. Got it? Capiche? Every year, same thing. Burns incense so he's not consumed by the presence of God. Takes two lambs. One's going to lay his life down. It's going to shed blood. The other one's going to go into the wilderness and remind the people they've been forgiven every single year. But Christ appeared. And when he appeared, it was done. It was paid for. It wasn't repeatedly done. Because if so... For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once and for all to the end of age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. By one single moment, Jesus paid the way so that we may have life and have it abundantly. That we may live with the Father forever and eternity. But the question is, is well, if that's the truth, then why didn't Jesus die on the Day of Atonement? Didn't he die some other like feast or festival? What was that? Um, I was hoping one of y'all had that. Passover, right? Passover. What's the difference about Passover? Well, here's the deal. On the Day of Atonement, you brought goats. Passover, it was a lamb. And the only requirements of the lamb was this, is that the lamb had to be pure in every way. It couldn't have spots, blemishes, defects. It had to be innocent. Couldn't have broken legs. It couldn't have been broken in any way. Like its bones had to have been intact. And then it had to be what? Slain and blood was taken and applied. Do you remember the Exodus story? Uh, do you remember that, that they're about to leave the, the, the place in which they've been in bondage for 400 years and that last plague is going to come It's the angel of death? And you remember what God told Moses? Moses, you need to tell all the people to take an innocent lamb and slaughter it and to take its blood and put it over the doorpost of your house that the angel of death may pass over. Jesus dies on Passover. So the angel of death passes over those that Jesus' blood has been applied to the doorpost of their heart. Matter of fact, John, um, <clears throat> 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in, the, uh, uh, in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And it was what? With totality and finality once and for all, which bears the question that, there's some of us in here that we need to talk about. If, if it's not repeatedly, but it's one sacrifice with finality, then why do we sometimes wonder if it's repeatedly? And so I've got a couple of questions for you. Number one, there is one faith in particular that would be a part of the Christian denomination, but every time they take the Lord's Supper, they would say that they're taking literally of the body of Christ, and after the priest blesses the cup, that uh, it's the blood of Christ, and the body, after the priest blesses it, that it's the body of Christ. They're, they're, they're drinking the literal blood and the literal body. And though it's God uses in some ways that you don't taste blood and you don't taste bread or uh, body, you taste what? Wine and, and you would taste bread. But somehow that there was this point that every time that you take that cup, that it's the literal body. It's called transubstantiation. The reason that doesn't work is because Hebrews makes it clear that no, it can't be offered repeatedly. 
Because what the sacrifices of old were offered repeatedly, but the deal is, is that they merely covered for a season. They didn't blot out. Jesus and his sacrifice once with totality does not merely cover, it blots out. It throws as far as the east is to the west, right? And so Jesus and his sacrifice is all we need. Got it? And just as is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not just to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. And so at that Passover, Jesus dies once and for all. And so that begs the question too. You so you mean died once and for all, so that means that we don't have to do it again. Yes, it actually is pointing to this. You and I can't possibly lose our salvation. If we could lose our salvation, then my question then deals with this. What does this say about God? Because in the Old Testament, a foreshadow, it had to be a repeated deal. But if Jesus, he pays for it once and all, if you and I could lose our salvation, I have two questions for you that you have to contemplate and answer. Number one, how do you lose something you never earned? And number two, if you could somehow lose it, then how many times does Jesus have to die before it takes place? Because the writer of Hebrews, he clearly makes the description and the point that in the old, which was the foreshadow of things to come, that a high priest had to habitually do this. But that Christ and the sacrifice of his blood was with finality. Matter of fact, you remember in Matthew, Jesus hanging on the cross, led like a lamb silent for his shears, dies, commits his spirit to the Lord, and he declares these words, it is finished. And then a Roman guard, he pierces him in the side. And another one comes up and he's about to smash his legs. The Roman soldier says, no, he's done. You remember Passover lamb? No broken bones. Confirmed in Jesus' death. Side was pierced, led like a lamb to the slaughter. For our sins, John 129, John the Baptist looks to Jesus. He goes, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. He dies. It is finished. And at the same time, after he's committed his spirit to the Lord, the earth would begin to shake and the clouds would grow dark. And a Roman soldier would declare, surely this is the Son of God. And as the earth shakes, inside of the city, there is a temple. And the scripture says, and there was a veil. You remember a curtain? separating the holy place from the most holy place. And it was torn in two from top to bottom. You see what Jesus did? Jesus passed over those who Romans 9, 10, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10 would say, have put a, what? A belief in their heart and confession with their mouth that he is Lord, that you would be saved, that you would be passed over. And so the question is, is what have you done with Jesus? See, the people of Israel, this is what they wanted, and in, in this is what they wanted in a Savior. They had, they had prophets who what gave divine words from God, right? You remember that? I mean, you, you had guys that were telling the people to repent. You had priests. Those priests are the ones who went, and they, they did sacrifice. You had the high priest who did it on behalf of the people one day a year, Day of Atonement, tenth day of the seventh month, Yom Kippur. You also had kings, and those kings, they were, they were called to govern the nation, yet they had a hard time doing that. 
And the nation of Israel, they longed for a day in which everything would be made right, that they would have priests that weren't corrupt, that they would have prophets that continued to not only reveal the word, but people would listen to them and they would obey and follow God and they wanted kings. That, that they weren't corrupt and they weren't partnering with priests to defile God and all the system, but that they would govern the people justly and rightly and that they would be trusted without the kingdom. And Israel could never find those things. And the reason why is because God knew that every prophet, every priest, and every king, just like the temple, was a copy of something better to come. Jesus fulfilled the role of the prophet, divine teacher, priest, inter intermediating between me and you and God, perfect sacrifice in every way. And what is king? Now, I'll tell you, God has given us an incredible opportunity to see him in one of two ways. We can see him as lamb, spotless, laying his life down for his friends, or one day we'll see him as king the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'll tell you that if you see him as lion, it will not be beneficial for you because his holiness will consume you in your presence and he will cast you aside. But if you see him as a lamb in this lifetime, knowing that he has passed over the sin in your heart by the sprinkling of his blood, then not only will you have life and have it everlasting, but you'll never meet Jesus as king, but you'll actually meet him as bride and sovereign Lord and Savior. Why? Because he, or he's, he is our bridegroom and he is awaiting us. Got it? So there's a lot for you to contemplate. And I don't know about you, but if I had a roast at home and some homemade rolls, wow, that sounds good, Kelly. <laughs> I would dine over those. And I would break bread together and I would sip on some sweet tea and I would say, thank you, God, that you did all this for me. Why? Because he's our prophet, he's our priest, and he's king. And he's what allows us to no longer do sacrificial systems, cutting goats and bulls and displaying blood in front of all the people, right? That we can just look to Jesus high and lifted up that we may have life and have it in his name. Amen. I think that's worth singing to God about. And I don't know about you, but I think it changes the course of my week. And my prayer is that it would change the course of your worship daily as you interact with people who, what? Need the hope of the world. And that hope is not found best in you or your new workout clothes <laughs> or your new Bible study. It is all about Jesus and pointing people to him it's always been by faith and bloodshed, and that's always going to continue. It's by faith and bloodshed. Amen? Let me pray for his church. God, we love you, and we thank you for today. We thank you, Lord, that we do not find forgiveness in our own works. That God is not about us cleaning ourselves up externally. It's not about us trying to be better people. It's not about keeping our kids from running in the church building. It's not about putting on our Sunday best. It's not about reading the King James Version of the Bible. It's about what you have done on our behalf, that we fall short of the glory of God because of our sin, because of our rebellion, and because of our staunch need to be someone. You look past that, and you pick us to be a part of your team. 
And though we were once lost in darkness, you call us a holy people, a chosen priesthood, meaning that because of your Son and Jesus and His death, because of the bloodshed for us, that we may have life and have it in your name. And because of that, I don't have to go to a priest or a pastor to get some access to you. But God, I can come into the very most holy place and I can look upon you and I can gaze upon you at the beauty of what you've done for us. And I can be loved by you and I can love you. I can serve you and I can find delight in encouraging my brothers and my sisters to live for you because one day I'll be home and I'll live and dwell with you forever. And God, that is our hope. And I pray that until that day comes, we would live faithfully for you, knowing that you don't reside in this building, this place. You reside in our hearts, and you guide us by the power of the Holy Spirit that's living and alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen.